Art Study of You. I'm your host, Cameron Gilmore. Look, this is part two of my interview with Josh Shea. Look, what he brought and talked about in the first part, in the first episode, is just mind-blowing. You know, you go through this path. You go through him just very being very open and honest and very vulnerable with all of us. But I think those of us and those of you that are still struggling have struggled with this addiction, this this life-altering addiction, this this mind shift addiction. Josh has has laid out and said, "I know where you're coming from. I've been there." I mean, imagine getting arrested, arrested, a public figure being arrested. That's just it's shocking to me. It, it's unbelievably sad. It's sad only because for a lot of reasons, not only, but a, a lot of reasons, different reasons, just not having the tools, just not knowing how to escape. But really, he was just one person of many that as soon as he saw it, he was hooked. There were many, there are many, many people who see porn and aren't hooked like that, but they use it as a different, they have a different vice. You know, some people will get, turn completely into music or uh, they turn to sports. You know, they turn to just building and growing and, and, and occupying their mind with something else besides knowing they could turn on at any moment and flip on pornography. Unbelievable. That 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 first episode with Josh is just shocking. It 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 it's helps you appreciate the never give up kind of attitude and just being the depths of hell. Really, that's where he was at. You know, his mind, body, and soul were come so far off balance. But then he helps us and brings us to the sense. So when you think about this next episode coming up man we are going to he goes into more depth about his arrest and talks about just how he knew that that was the best thing for him then we get into some more statistical stuff it's not about if it's about when he even talks about it's more uncommon for people not to have seen porn than there is to see it jo josh knows what he's talking about and i hope you all are listening at the way that I am listening in the sense of it may not just be porn. It could be some other vices that we have, but there's always a way to get out. It is hard work. It's a struggle. Talk about being the low of the low, being walked out of your home, having to call your wife from the police car, a public figure arrested, and now he's got to do some time. Man, this th this part two is going to be just add on to what we've already learned. Guys, I am so jacked. I am so fired up to present the part two of my interview with Josh Shea on the art study of you. Let's jump right into it. Holy, <clears throat> I, I almost cussed. I almost cussed there. Go for it. You can cut it but, out after. And uh, I'll, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll know when no one else will. <laughs> Hope, guys, listen, you, that, that's a master class. That is a master class, what Josh just shared with you. It's something he teaches as a principal, but this is from a guy who, who has spent years and years understanding who he is internally, who he is mentally and emotionally and physically and spiritually. This is a guy who has been through the fire and is telling you, all of you, anybody out there who has an addiction, 
This is just happens to be porn addiction. But it, like he laid out, if you have any of these other addictions, start with those two major principles and work from there and then go get the help that is needed. But you have to choose that you want the help. That's the key thing is you have to choose that you want the help. And I love that you said that, Josh, because people were pushing you to get help and it wasn't until you discovered your why. Why, do, why should I want this for myself? I think you're right. I'm watching porn and my wife walks in. How many of us, how many would of people that would be in that situation have been on the other side with boom, instantly got divorced? I know 100%. If I ever, if I ever did that and my wife walked in on me, first she'd, you know, first she'd probably beat the crap out of me and then she would divorce me. But secondly, I think it's, you said something key there. How do you, how those of you that have kids or future kids, how, how are you, how would your kids react when, if, if that was the case, if that was the case and they, they whether it was porn or alcoholism or maybe just, maybe just verbal abuse, like how would they act and see you as a dad or as a mom if women, you know, cause it happens to women too. I think Josh said something very important there. We have to le- look deep within. And once we can come to, to grips saying that I need something better in life and this cannot, I cannot allow this illness to control me anymore. Frick, man. Now I want to jump out right now on my second, I'm, you know, I'm upstairs. I just want to jump out the window, rip my shirt off and scream as loud as I can because that was amazing. What you talked about and shared is absolutely amazing. And we appreciate, everybody listen, appreciates what you just shared with us because man, guys, we're not done yet. We are not done yet. We are not done yet because I need to ask this question because I know that a lot of people are probably, you were addicted um, from, like you said, 12 to to 37, heavily in porn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Regular porn just didn't do it for you more. You went on these chats and you brought people in. You're able to get one-on-one and be able to show them. How, How was your arrest? Take us through that arrest because okay. I, I know it's important for a lot of people to hear and, yeah. and take us yeah. through that. You, I didn't know you were in public office. Yeah. I mean, God, look. check, you want, you want to know what, uh, and I use, I, whoops, I'm sorry. I my at, you're phone, good. All right. My camera, I want to show you something. I don't bring this out during these, but this is, this is the key to the city of Auburn, Maine. Only two people got this in a 10 year series, in a 10 year stretch. Um, I got it at the very end when I of being a, uh, a city councilor. Let me just fix that. Man, uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, I, uh, I got that at, towards the end of being a city councilor because people talk about, you know, uh, the people around you become uh, influencers. The people around you become, uh, what's the word, enablers. And I tell you, I was, I was such a gaslighter, such a master gaslighter from a small age where I should have had a doctorate in gaslighting. I feel like I was able to gaslight my entire community and let them see a version of me that I never was. You know, I, maybe now I, because of the people I help and how I've turned my life around, maybe now I deserve a key to the city. But when I got that key to the city, I knew that it was, it was a PR move. It was just, you know, to get headlines. And it was, I, I totally bit into that stuff back then. I loved that stuff back then. I was such an, such a massive egomaniac. 
Um, you know, people, it's funny, we're talking about addiction. Um, people say that, uh, you know, oh my God, I don't want to change. I don't want to change. I, I'm afraid of who I'll be. And the thing is, if you like chocolate ice cream while you were an addict, you're going to like chocolate ice cream in recovery. And the same thing goes with a lot of personality traits. Just because I fit, uh, just because I was able to develop tools to not look at porn and not uh, use alcohol, it didn't radically completely change my personality. I was kind of a difficult person to be around. And once I got into early recovery, I was a difficult person to be around then. I had a lot of work to do on myself and I got lucky. And this is one of the things that I wanted to go back to what you just said when you mentioned that, you know, I poured myself into getting better. I was very, very lucky that I had a couple of okay insurances that uh, my parents and uh, had saved a lot of money in their life that I saved a lot of money in my life. And I was able to go get the kind of treatment that I needed. I also was able to basically not work for about a year and a half and look at my mental and physical health as a full-time job, um, fixing that. So I don't want people to think that, you know, this was easy at all. When people ask me on TikTok, so how do I get better? And I just think, oh my God, that if you think that I can give you a sentence that tells you how to get better, that's, that's rough. Um, now, ultimately, um, what happened was that uh, addictions escalate. People who drink beer, I had to stop drinking beer at one point because I couldn't get drunk on it anymore. So tequila became my new drink, tequila and Red Bull. That was, that was my uh, drink of choice because I could still feel it. You have to escalate. A gambler who spends $10 on a hand of blackjack eventually has to spend 20 and eventually has to spend 50. That's not that they're getting a bigger high at $50. It's that addicts are chasing the same high they got earlier. They're just not getting it the way they could before. You build up a tolerance. For me with pornography, I couldn't find anything, excuse me, I couldn't find anything that was exciting to me anymore. I didn't want to sit for an hour in front of a computer because, you know, I have seen every kind of pornography and nothing was working for me to get to my chemicals. That's why I started to get into these chat rooms. And that's when I started to, you know, try to manipulate these women. And while I always did try, if I saw somebody who looked like a child to get away from it on March 20th, 2014, uh, a couple months after I actually ironically stopped doing this, um, three cars pulled up in front of my house and you don't have to be a child of the 80s to know what an unmarked police car looks like, but we all know. And when five or six guys get out of unmarked cars, all wearing you know navy blue uh, golf jackets, which again, it's March in Maine, so it's much colder than that. You know exactly who they are. I didn't know why they were at my house. I was sitting at my kitchen table doing some work from home that morning. And uh, when they got to the door, I saw, one, I, I saw one holding a piece of paper and I could make out enough of the words that I knew that this had to do with underage pornography. And so that was the moment that I thought to myself, oh my God, my life is gone forever. I'm gonna kill myself tonight. But once I let them in the house, uh, and I think that was my way of saying, okay, I can deal with what comes next. I can just kill myself later. Um, once I let them in the house and we started having a conversation, I actually eased up quite a bit. And, and I told them the truth. I told them exactly what happened. I brought out my computers for them, showed them what happened. They took them to their forensics van that showed up and confirmed what I showed them at the, 
kitchen table for the most part. I never tried to hide it. I never pled guilty. I never pled, uh, you know, innocent to anything. Um, and uh, it was a it was a matter of uh, it was a matter of recognizing that I was at the end of a very long ordeal um, for myself. When I was in the police car or his car, he let me sit up front. You know, he said, I have to put cuffs on you. I'm sorry, but I'll put them on front. Um, when I was in the police car driving to the driving to the sheriff's office, he said to me, you're one of the calmest guys I've ever seen in this situation. And I just said to him, well, I know that I made a mistake. And he, and he said, I know you're not a pedophile. And I said, well, I know that too. And I said, but my life has not been manageable for a long, long time. And he said, I think someday you're going to come back and thank me for this. And actually about three years ago, I gave him a phone call and I thanked him for it. He was absolutely right. Um, and my legal ordeal was I was, uh, I was arrested with, uh, for one count of possession because the thing that I did, and this goes back to a lot of people who have process addictions, Think about gambling. Think about video games. There are uh, goals there. There are, you try to win money. You try to get points. You try to win tokens, whatever it is. Pornography is kind of the same thing. It's a matter of control. It's a matter of winning. It's a matter of power. And when I went into chat rooms, I didn't want to find a girl who would just rip her top off and show me her boobs. I wanted to talk to somebody who would say I would never do that. And then I wanted to spend two hours in the middle of the night kind of breaking them down and, and, and seeing if I could get them to do that. And when they did, I would take a screen capture real fast. So that was like a trophy. I never used any of those pictures for masturbatory purposes. I just had a folder on my desktop where I put those photos. After I spent two, three hours of trying to get a woman to do what I wanted them to do and they did it, I'd take a quick picture, throw it in there. And then when I needed it, I could go look at those pictures and say, see, you're still capable of doing things. You still have control. If I look through my history and timeline of my addictions, I used pornography far more often and far for far longer times during those times in my life where I felt like I was out of control. And if I was having trouble with the magazine, if I was having trouble with uh, the, the magazine, because I, uh, I was a, an owner of a publishing company, and I was the editor of our main product as well. Um, I would feel like things were falling apart at work, go home, look at pornography or go to a chat room and try to convince someone to do something. It was like ordering them around. It gave me a sense of control. And I made the heinous mistake of talking to someone who was underage. She, I think most people would say didn't look it, but it doesn't matter in that situation. It doesn't matter one bit because whether she was 16 or 26, it was a really bad thing to do to anybody. And that was really uh, also part of my big wake up call because it was like, you are now doing bad things to people. This isn't just about yourself. You are now bringing other people in doing bad things to them. And uh, I, I, it was, it was the wake up call that I needed. Uh, if I hadn't had that happen when it happened, I only give 50-50 odds I'd be sitting with you here now, maybe even not that good. Um, but I went through the I went through the legal, you know, rigmarole that takes so long. 
um, in uh, January of 2016, so 22 months after I was first arrested, and I went to both of my rehabs during that time, I, I got a lot better. 22 months after, after I was arrested, the healthiest version of myself I had ever been stood in court to be sentenced. And uh, I got nine months and I ended up serving six months and six days of it uh, in, our, in our local county jail. Let me ask this question. So you're sitting in jail. Obviously, you know, you got to do the time, right? Yeah. They're saying you do, you do the crime and you got to do the time. Yeah. And I never, I, I want to point out, I never believed that I got too much time. I never believed I got too little time. One of the things that I learned with radical acceptance is it doesn't matter what I think. And it doesn't matter what you think or my mom thinks or anybody thinks. It matters what the judge thinks. She decided nine months was appropriate. So I made peace with nine months being appropriate. I'm glad you, I'm glad you say that because you're sitting, we're sitting in, in, in jail, right? You're sitting in jail. What, what then is the process? What are you thinking during the time there? I mean, obviously you're a, a better version of yourself. Is that, I mean, because now you're, look, you, you have, you have a history, you've got a record, um, you, you've got a, a, you know, you've got a label on you, if you will, right? What, what goes through that process? What is your mindset in there as your, uh, you know, what you're doing, your day-to-day, -day, and what are you saying, when I get out, I'm going to execute this? Or is it completely different? Uh, it's actually different because I knew I was going to get some jail time, most likely, no matter what. And keep in mind, I had 22 months to get ready. So I talked to a couple people who had similar uh, experiences as myself as far as the type of uh, underage uh, of violation and what happened to them when they went to the local jail. What could I expect in the local jail? I actually called the person who I replaced on the city council went on to become the deputy sheriff. And I called him literally when I was going through this process and said, you know, hey, Eric, what's this going to be like for me? And he explained it and kind of calmed me down and gave me the realities because it's not like Shawshank Redemption. It's mm -hmm. not like The Wire on HBO. Um, I, what, what I, what I was becoming a better person, I decided that I was going to have um, some time in jail. It could have been one month. It could have been three years. I knew that I was going to get something. And I decided that I would try to use that time to better myself. Um, and I did to a degree. I ended up reading 25 books during those six months. I ended up writing not only the first draft of my autobiography, I wrote two other books, one which I released under a different name. Um, but perhaps the most, uh, once I realized I was safe, I was kept in the old jail library. So they took the books out years ago and put in six bunk beds. So it was a, it was a fairly largish room with the most ever was 12, usually it was about eight guys in there. We had a private bathroom with a private shower and it was, it was uh, low security, uh, protective custody. So nobody was gonna mess with anybody and nobody there wanted to mess with anybody. Most people there were just awaiting their real trials, which would mm. maybe send them away for years and years. I was actually serving my sentence at the county jail, um, unlike most people. So once I realized I was safe, I would not be attacked, I could largely live my life the way that I wanted, that's when I started you know, writing my books, that's when I started reading more. 
And the thing that was really interesting was every pod in the county jail gets two copies of the newspaper. The day before I started to serve my sentence, the newspaper ran a very big story about me, kind of re restating everything that had happened up to that day in the last two years, because I was very well known. I was a kind of a local celebrity of sorts. And um, the people in my pod read about that the day before I got there. So when I showed up, they knew exactly who I was. They knew exactly what I did, but they also knew that I had gone through recovery because that was mentioned in that story. So once a couple of these guys started to uh, feel safe around me, they started to ask me about their sex problems, their porn, porn problems, and wanting to know, you know, should they get help when they got out of here uh, for that kind of stuff? One guy was telling me how, you know, he never had lunch with the guys at work. He had to go with his car and look at porn for 30 minutes. Uh, you know, one guy had had sex with over 1,500 women. Did that make him a sex addict? Yeah, probably. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when I first started helping people. That's when I was like, okay, there, there is more to this than I realized. Uh, it took the pandemic for me to get into coaching, but uh, I realized that there were just so many people who wanted information and wanted help about this. It was in jail when I said, if this book goes well, maybe I can write more. Maybe I can do something else. And because I was a decent public speaker, I said, okay, I'm going to find myself an agent and I'm going to go to colleges and then whoever will have me. So mainly in the Northeast, um, after I got out of jail, I was doing those kinds of appearances and working on my books. Um, but it was in jail where, you know, guys first started saying to me, hey, I know you had this problem. Can I talk to you about it? And jail was... I tell people my situation wasn't hard time, but it was long time. Mm -hmm. There was, I started to lose sense of time. I started to lose sense of days of the week. You know, there's, you always got the same uh, fluorescent lights bearing down on you. The beds are not comfortable. You get a, like one of those gym mats you used to do sit-ups on in elementary school uh, as your bed. The food is terrible and it just becomes like a bad version of the movie Groundhog Day but I worked very hard to keep my sanity, to keep my newfound, you know, uh, positive attitude. And I was able to, you know, I could have wasted my time learning every card game in existence or watching every DC or Marvel superhero movie, which seems like was always happening in our pod. But I spent the time to try to keep my nose in books, keep writing, keep going forward. Because one of the things my lawyer said to me on the first day that I met him, which was the day after I was arrested, he said, someday all of this legal stuff is going to be over. Do you want to be the same a-hole that you are now? And he didn't even know me, but he recognized I was a pretty big a-hole. And uh, I realized, no, I didn't want to be that guy. And one day it would all be over. And I didn't want, I couldn't go back to being that guy, but nor did I want to. And that was interesting because that was the wake up call, I think, that allowed me to go to rehab and not play the fake it till you make it game and just to get a, a piece of paper to impress a judge. Um, that was when I got, that was when, you know, I opened my eyes and went to rehab and said, I think I'm exactly the person they're talking about here. I can pretend I'm not, I can rationalize I'm not, I can minimize I'm not, but I think I'm exactly the type of person who's supposed to be here. And that attitude helped change me. And I think that attitude helped me get through jail the best way possible. And, you know, dare I say, helping some people along the way while I was in there. <laughs> Holy cow. <clears throat> Almost cussed again, but I won't.
Josh, man, that, that, that's deep. Seriously. There's so much to unpack within this. You're not, you're never making an excuse. That's why, why I wrote four books. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But the, the thing is, you know, you're not making an excuse. You're not saying, well, you know, because of this, this, well, because of that, that, or, you know, this is what happened to me. And so this is why I am the way I am. You could have when you got arrested and be like, look, it's not my fault. Like, and pushed everything. Cause that happens a lot in society. Oh, yeah. Push the blame, push the blame, push the blame. You owned up to everything, which I think is you, you're sharing your story, which means you've come to re, a, a, a grips of your reality. You said, look, it happened to me. And it happened for me. And now I can help others, millions, millions of people I can help and to help them. I said that started in, in jail. Yeah. And I think that that's key because to truly heal, you have to, you have to say enough is enough. I can't blame anybody else except for the person that I look in the mirror and say, are you going to continue this path? Are you still going to be that same a-hole that you've been your entire life? Are you still going to blame something? It is traumatic. I understand that you go through, look, I, in my own life, I've had traumatic events, 100% traumatic. Your story, you hear, I hear this a lot of times from people who grew up in the same, in that same era, right? The early to the early 90s when you were, you're right. You'd watch the, the, the rock em up, shoot em down movies. But by golly, if a, if, if a breast showed up, you know, your hands were supposed to be like here, right? Put yeah. your hands over your eyes. Oh, yeah, okay, I can't see anything. And that's just, it was kind of just how it was. But now yeah. the, the narrative is switching, guys. Josh is telling you, take, you can take control of your life if you want to take control of your life. I'm telling you, you can take control of your life if you choose to take control of your life. There's a bigger purpose in this world and it cannot be somebody you see on a screen or on your phone who you will never ever meet. If you're married, why, why, why would you look at something on screen when it's sitting next to you? And you're right, Josh, you're right, because it is effective and it's when it happens at an early age, I mean, you're like, yeah, but yeah, but I totally understand it. So I need to ask this question. Sure. You were married. Mm -hmm. What, what, take us through that interaction. Take us what happened because a lot of people are probably thinking, well, what, what happened with the family? Like dynamics, if you could, you know, obviously you don't need to go too depth if you want, but just give us a little bit of what that interaction was like and that conversation. And then how did it, how did it pan out? I'll tell you even more interestingly is the day before um, I was arrested, I went to pick up my son at my mom's house. I think he was in third or fourth grade at the time. I went to pick up my son at my mom's house to bring him back home. Uh, she got him at school that day. And when I walked in, this was the day before I was arrested. She said to me, you look like you're about to die. And I was like, what? She's like, you, I've never seen you look this unhealthy. And I was like, oh, I'm just tired, blah, blah, you know, making excuses. But the fact that she said that the day before I was arrested still sticks in my mind really, really big. Um, so when I was arrested, I told you I was in the front seat of the car with that uh, very nice and, uh, and polite police officer. Um, he let me use my cell phone to call my wife. She was at work. Um, she worked for a healthcare company. And uh, she, uh, I told her, hey, you know, I was just arrested. They found uh, underage pornography on my phone, on my uh, computer. Uh, it is not little children. It was teenage girls, but that doesn't matter right now. I need you to get $500 and bring it to the sheriff's office. And she said, okay. 
Um, it was only about 45 minutes to an hour before she got there and before I was processed out. I was not held very long whatsoever. I saw the inside of a holding cell for probably all of 10 minutes. Um, and they, when they released me, they said, you know, she said she'd be out in the car. So I went out and she was there ready to go. And I jumped in. First thing I said was, I don't talk, don't talk. If you want a divorce, you've got it. You can have the kids, you can have the cars, you can have the house, you can have everything. It's totally yours. I know what this is going to be, is going to be more than anybody could ever ask. And she said to me, well, we know you've been sick for a very long time. And we've been trying to get you to go get help for a very long time. Maybe this will help you. Right now, let's just focus on you and let's focus on our family and we'll get you help and we'll deal with a lot of this later. And I went first to that rehab for alcohol about 10 days later. And then I went to the, uh, I went to the uh, rehab for um, sex and porn about 14 months later. Um, if she hadn't seen me doing the hard work of getting better, of trying to improve myself, I know she would have left. I know she wouldn't have stuck around very long. She's not that type of person who would allow herself to be a victim but she also is the kind of person who will give you a second chance. She did create boundaries. I did not cross them. I did follow along with them because that's, I did not want to lose this part of my life, being my wife and my kids and my home and that life that I had that was more important than anything else to me when I really thought about it. So I did the hard work to keep that going. Thankfully, because she worked in healthcare, because she had seen addiction in her own family previously, she knew that I was addicted to porn. She, uh, she obviously knew I was addicted to alcohol. The porn made sense when she put, once she put things together, but she knew that I was, I was an alcoholic. I mean, I would drive home drunk. One of, one of the great aha moments of my life was my first week in alcohol rehab, where we had to figure out how much we'd driven drunk in our life. And mine was over 1500 times. And I was stopped by cops probably four or five times in those last few years. They always let me go because of who I was and in the community. And they knew that, you know, it, it would be a big deal. And so they would always let me go. And uh, I never learned my lesson there, but she knew I was a raging alcoholic. Not drinking alcohol to this day is still showing her that I'm working on this. The pornography, she uh, she knew that I watched some, like a lot of uh, partners know that their husband or boyfriend watches some, but uh, she didn't know the extent of my use. She didn't know why I was using. She did not know I had the addiction there. Because when you're a drunk who is slurring, who is lying horribly, who you know smells, uh, you can't hide that you're a drunk. It's very easy to hide that you're a porn addict. If you're not looking for somebody to be a porn addict, it's pretty hard to see it. Um, if you, yet you can see people who are drunk without even looking very hard. So one of the things was I was very much able to mask my porn addiction with the alcoholism. Man, that's deep, Josh. That's really deep. Let me ask this because I want to be obviously sensitive to it. Um, what is what is one or two principles that you could share and impart on us 
with somebody who is face kind of bearing down the same way, right? You know, oftentimes you're, you're a very small exception to the rule with people who get caught yeah. with porn and bam, you know, um, you know, next, you know, they're divorced and, you know, they lose everything and now they go down a path. Give us one or two principles that you can share that one helped you start to heal or forgive those that had imparted their will onto you at such a young age. And then the second is help us understand how you were able to just make amends with all the demons above and beyond just the, the physical abuse. Um, well, uh, I'll enter this answer. The second part first, I largely did a 12 step sort of amends process on my own. I did not, I did not, uh, recover with the 12 steps. I went to both AA and SAA for a little while, but the kind of, uh, people who get help there are not exactly wired the same way I am as personality. So that wasn't a great, while I appreciate the program, it wasn't a great fit for me, but I did have to basically say sorry to a lot of people. And a lot of people uh, I couldn't say sorry to, I just had to accept the fact that they probably looked me at me in a different way than they did before. One of the things that's really nice is now, and I still live in the same town, I will come upon somebody who, it's been eight years since I got arrested. So I think there's kind of some statute limitations in some people's minds for shunning me because the last year I've had more people say, oh, hello, it's nice to see you. And how are you doing? And then they hear what I'm doing these days and they, you know, it's, it's a nice conversation. Um, for the people who mattered, my family, my close friends, uh, a couple of former colleagues, I went one-on-one -on -one and dealt with them. For a lot of, uh, there were some people at another tier where I kind of, I wrote some letters and, and said that I was sorry. I didn't need them to contact me again. I'm sorry that I disappointed them. I'm sorry that I was living a secret life. I'm sorry that I lied to them so many times. That was, uh, and then I really came to recognize who the important people are in my life. I have, I would say, honestly, four friends in my life, uh, real close friends. Three of them I met before any of this ever happened when I was in my 20s. Um, and they were there for me during it and they're still there for me today. All those people who needed the magazine publisher to run a story for them, all those people who needed the city councilor to you know, pass some kind of ordinances for them, they're all gone, they left. They were users just like I was a user. Um, but I have this core group of friends and family who they know the story, they knew who I really am, they know the real changes. Um, so when people, you know, on, on TikTok or somewhere else badmouth me, it's like, you have to, you have to know somebody and respect their opinion before, or, and respect them before you can respect their opinion. So a lot of that, that negative stuff just bounces off of me these days, because I know who I am, I know what I am, and the people who truly matter to me also know. Um, and now I have to ask for what was the first half of that question again, because I knew a two-parter was going to get me. So I had to answer the first part first or the second gotcha. part first. Gotcha. Man, I love that. I mean, you owned up to every, everything you did. You wrote letters, you met with the people individually. That's big. That's huge in recovery. I mean, people are going to listen to this and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to judge one or the other. They're going to go be like, oh, what, man, that guy's a freaking idiot. Like, are you kidding me? And the other ones are like, hey, 
you know, he owned up to what he did. Yeah, it was a mess. You know, kudos to him. How could you? And then others be like, how could you destroy? I, I want to say this because I, I would love to get your 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 opinion on this, your professional sure. opinion on this. I I hear this a lot. You hear this a lot from people that you know deal with porn or whatnot. It's um, um, where's the? It's like where's the disconnect? You know, over the years, you just stop. Like you just you put it down whenever you want. You just got to control yourself. Help us understand. Get, do you have any, give us some statistical information that says, listen, <laughs> porn is, porn is worse. I, I, I don't know because I, I haven't really done a lot of research, but I feel like porn is, is a lot worse of an addiction than alcohol or smoking or, you know, drugs. So I want to know from a professional opinion or statistics Help bring us into that space. What, how bad really is porn when, when okay. you look at it from a very high level uh, view? There are um, a couple statistics I'll share with you, but I think it, what I've really noticed is that there is a demarcation line of before the internet and after the internet. Um, I am one of those people who was a porn addict who got addicted before the internet. We were much, much, much rarer. Um, and there is, and the people who now are about 35, 36 years old and younger, they do not remember a world before the internet, um, especially high speed internet. Now you can go a little bit lower. People younger than 23, 24 don't remember a world before social media, because I think that's been an especially uh, you know, potent poison on people. And if you look across the board in America, and this is a statistic back from 2016 or 17, there haven't been many new statistics lately because the pandemic kind of stopped everybody from researching this stuff. And we're just starting to get new things out. But the last time I saw a good statistic, it said across America, across all demographics, 18% of people self-identify as having a pornography addiction or a problem with pornography. So that's almost one in five. But to illustrate just how major it is for the younger audience, men between the ages of 18 and 30, 33% feel like they have a problem with pornography, uh, beginning an addiction to pornography, or have a full-blown pornography addiction. That's one out of three guys in America under 30 years old, and now I guess it would be 35 since that statistic's five years old. Uh, one in, one in uh, three men in America under 35 years old now identifies as somebody who uses too much pornography, uses pornography to an unhealthy level, to an addictive level. That's how major this is. And if you want to know, you know, what, what's so, so, okay, so there are these guys, big deal. There's still two thirds that aren't. Well, here's another scary statistic for you. Back in the mid nineties, when I was 20 years old, the rate for uh, erectile dysfunction among men who were uh, who were my age was between two and four percent. Today, the people who are in their very early twenties, males in America, it's twenty to twenty-five percent. Now, you wait, wait, me, wait, 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 yep, wait, wait, yep. wait, wait, wait. No, that's it. Go, go back. Give me those statistics again, please, okay. because you are right. I, I, 
I need you to give me the statistics. I need to, I need to make a point. I almost jumped out of my skin, but go back to the first statistic. Take us through the statistics again, because we need to understand this. Okay. Across all nationalities, sex, age, no matter, no, no identifying characteristics other than American. People in a survey by the Barna Group, which is one of the most respected organizations that does polling surveys, that kind of stuff. Uh, you can go look this up. Like I said, I think it was, I think it was 17. It came out, might've been 18. Um, they found that across every demographic, 18% of people, self, men and women, self-identified as having an issue with pornography. In the smaller broken down group of 18 to 30 year old males, different religions, different nationalities, or different, uh, you know, creeds, races, all of that, all ages, roughly 30% of, or 32, uh, it's 32.6% of men identified as having a problem with pornography that would or was going to raise to the level of addiction. So basically one in three, that's your overall large population. And then when it comes to uh, erectile dysfunction, and I bring this up because just because you're not an addict doesn't mean you can't get erectile dysfunction. Um, we're seeing this in a lot of people who aren't addicts. When I was 20 years old, so we're going back to 1996 here. When I was 20 years old, the rate of uh, erectile dysfunction was around two to 4% for men my age who are 20. The most recent studies show erectile dysfunction rates of between 20 and 25%, depending upon the study that you choose to look at. So you tell me, in the last 20, 25 years, have we evolved, have we devolved, or have we introduced some element that has caused this? Well, is it add additives in our foods? Is it you know the ozone layer? Well, what is causing uh, you know this? crazy growth in erectile dysfunction and the answer to me is obvious it's high speed internet porn because you can now watch people doing sexual things think about this in the time that we're doing this interview there's probably a 13 year old kid out there who will watch more pornography than is in the time we're doing this interview than his great grandfather did in his entire lifetime and this kid is watching this stuff every day even if he doesn't end up as a porn addict, you can't tell me that there isn't gonna be some other problems. And that's also why I'm out there talking about pornography, because even if it doesn't measure up fully to addiction, we're seeing all kinds of other issues around pornography, but because it involves naked people, because it involves naked people doing naked people things, we don't wanna talk about it. And we're never gonna talk, be able to talk about the problems with pornography, which does include addiction, unless we start to talk about pornography itself, like you and I are doing. And even though we've been talking now about an hour and 15 minutes, we haven't talked once about a graphic pornography scene. And I think that's what scares people is you don't have to talk about what's in the pornography to talk about pornography. And if you look at the statistics, almost everybody is using it under 40 years old. You know, the numbers are huge. People have used once in the last month. It's far more than half of women. It's far more than three quarters of men. You are less common if you are not watching pornography these days. So we need to grow up 
look at these statistics and learn from them. Because the last thing I'll say on this is that I remember back in the early mid 80s when Nancy Reagan was urging me to just say no. And I thought it was cool that I got my dare t-shirt because I was anti-drugs and alcohol. Well, nobody said a darn thing about pornography. And back then we were taught that people who use things called opiates like heroin, they were bad people. They were from the other side of the tracks. You didn't want to talk to somebody who used heroin. They were gross. Well, what happened in the next 25 years when we weren't paying attention? The opiate and opioid explosion. Yet we can pretend we didn't see it coming before the pandemic. If you remember, it became every politician's, you know, cause celeb because suddenly everybody was talking about the opioid crisis or the opiate crisis. That was the big deal. People started to care. But we were talking about this in the 80s. You can go back and listen to rap music in the 80s when they're talking about abusing Vicodin. You can go back and you can listen to cop shows in the 60s when they're talking about heroin. We knew that the opioid crisis was going to happen. And then when it started happening, we went with just say no. What I'm trying to do now is saying, listen, people, this is now the 70s for the opioid crisis. If we don't want to be freaking out that half of our men and a third of our women in 25, 30 years have issues with pornography, we need to do something now. It's now is the time to be active. The opioid crisis, we were reactive. We suck in this country at being active and proactive. We're reactive people. And we need to be more proactive when it comes to pornography. And if these stats from five years ago um, or these stats about erectile dysfunction aren't going to scare you, I don't know what will.